Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Well, this morning, we are in the book of Nahum. If you are not there yet, I invite you to join me there. And I will join you as soon as my iPad decides to cooperate. Here we go. So as Pastor Jerry said, we are continuing our journey through the minor prophets and we are in the book of Nahum today. And to my knowledge, I've never heard anyone preach a message from this book. If I'm honest, I don't know that I've ever even heard of a pastor say I am planning to preach from Nahum. So as I began to read Nahum, the first thing that stuck out to me was that this book is a sequel to Jonah. And it reminded me of one of the greatest movie sequels of all time. The Empire Strikes Back. And if we loosely... Emphasis on the word loosely here. If we loosely use the first Star Wars and the second Star Wars as metaphors, they are kind of like the story of Jonah and Nahum. Let me explain what I mean here. So in the first Star Wars, we meet Luke Skywalker, who will become the main hero. He grew up on Tatooine, a desert planet, and he was raised by his aunt and his uncle. And Luke wanted to go off and join the rebellion to fight the big evil empire that was ruled by the emperor of the universe and his right-hand man, his number two in charge, Darth Vader. But his uncle wouldn't let him because he needed a Luke on the farm. Well, shortly into the movie, Luke's aunt and uncle are killed by stormtroopers, by some soldiers of the Empire. So Luke joins Obi-Wan Kenobi, and they go off and join the rebellion. And at the end of the movie, Luke goes into battle, and he destroys the Death Star, the new weapon of the Empire that can destroy an entire planet with one shot. And he sends Darth Vader literally hurtling off into space. And the good guys win. And it's a happy day. Kind of like in the book of Jonah, when God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, even though he had a little detour on the way, eventually he got to Nineveh. He preached, the people of Nineveh repented, and God relented from his judgment on Nineveh. And it was a happy day. But then the sequel came out and things didn't look as good for the good guys in the sequel. The second Star Wars movie, The Empire Strikes Back, opens up with a battle on the ice planet of Hoth where a lot of good guys die. Some of the rebellion are able to escape. Luke escapes with them and he goes off to Dagobah to be trained by Yoda to become a Jedi. But there's one problem. Luke doesn't stay long enough to finish his training. He finds out his friends are in trouble. Han Solo is encased in carbonite. Leia and Chewie are captured. So he goes off to fight Darth Vader one-on-one. And we all know, if you've seen the movie, you know how this ends. 
He fights Vader. Vader chops off his hand. Vader says, Luke, join me and we'll rule the empire together. And then he says to Luke, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. And Luke says, you killed my father. And Vader responds. And even though I couldn't hear it, every single person that said Luke right there is wrong. Because Vader says, no, I am your father. If you don't believe me, go check it out on YouTube or watch the movie. But the movie ends pretty bleak for the heroes. Things are not looking good for the good guys. Well, when we get to Nahum, even though at the end of Jonah, things looked pretty good for the people of Nineveh, by the time we get to Nahum, things are not looking very well. In fact, things look downright terrible for the people of Nineveh because God is about to dispense his judgment against this city and against the nation of Assyria. Now, we don't really know much about Nahum the man. His book tells us his name is Nahum. And he's from Elkosh. All we know about that city is it was in the southern kingdom of Judah. We don't know where it was. But what's clear is that his message is more important than the messenger. And that's still true today when we are talking about God's word. The message is more important than the messenger. And Nahum is different from all the other prophets we've seen so far in a couple of ways. The first way is Nahum doesn't travel. Here we see the map of the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah. In the northeast to the top right of the map, you see the kingdom of Assyria and its capital city of Nineveh. The other prophets that we've looked at so far went to the place that they were prophesying against. Jonah went to Nineveh to prophesy against Nineveh. Amos went from the southern kingdom to the northern kingdom of Israel to prophesy about Israel. This is not the case for Nahum. Nahum prophesies in Judah about Nineveh. And that's a really important thing for us to remember. The second difference is that the other prophets we've seen so far... Their preachings and their sayings were collected after their ministries and they were put together in the books that we have today. But it seems like Nahum actually sat down and wrote this book. He actually sat down and wrote the book after the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into exile. So in 722 BC, Assyria invaded Israel defeated the northern kingdom, scattered the people, and took God's people in Israel into exile. And this book that we're studying today was written sometime between 663 and 612 BC. And let me explain to you how we came to these dates. In 663 BC, the city of Thebes fell to Assyria. Nahum describes that in chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. And in 612 BC, the Babylonians and the Medes invaded Assyria and conquered Nineveh. So we know that this book was written sometime in that window. And from a distance, if we were to step back and just look at Nahum from a distance, Nahum can look like an unfair book written by a prophet who's bitter and angry at the oppression from Assyria. 
from a distance, it could look like Nahum is just upset about what God has allowed Assyria to do. So he's prophesying judgment and the end of Assyria. Because this is a book full of judgment. This is a book full of God's judgment against Nineveh and against the nation of Assyria. And this is a book full of judgment against God's enemies. But when we look closely, we see a very different picture in this book. From up close, we see a sovereign, just God. We see a God who is sovereign over all creation and who is just at all times. A God who enforces his justice and gives hope to his people. And we need to be careful when we approach the book of Nahum. So often we come to the Bible and we open up the Bible and we think, this book is about me. And we try to see ourselves in God's word. We need to make sure that we do not do that, especially with Nahum. This is not a book about us. This is a book about a just God. About a God who offers hope to his people in their oppression. And that's Nahum's main message. God will judge his enemies, but he is a refuge for his people. God will judge his enemies, but he is a refuge for his people. Even in the darkest times, there is hope for those who rely upon God. There is hope for those who rely upon God because he is a just God who judges his enemies. There is hope because God is a refuge for those who trust in him. And what we see in this book is that Nineveh is going to be judged not because they are Judah's enemy, but because they are God's enemy. So today we're going to break the book of Nahum down into four parts. At the beginning of chapter 1, we see a psalm of God's character. And the chapter ends by God promising peace to his people. In chapter 2, Nineveh is attacked. And in chapter 3, Nineveh is destroyed. And then before we end by looking at the hope that this book offers us, we're going to see a couple of ways that we can apply the book of Nahum to our life. So Nahum's prophecy opens up in verse 1 and it says that this is a prophecy concerning Nineveh. We're told that this is about Nineveh, but then Nahum does not address Nineveh. He begins by focusing on God. He begins with a psalm that talks about God's character. That shows us that at all times, God is a just God. God is a jealous God and God is an avenging God. Let's start in verse 1 together this morning. A prophecy concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. 
The mountains quite quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. So in these verses, we see a list of the characteristics of God. And the first character that Nahum mentions is God is a jealous God. We're going to come back to this in a minute to see what this means. Nahum then says that God is avenging or he is a vengeful God. This shows us that God is a God of justice. And as his people, we should find hope in that truth. God is slow to anger. We have seen this in the book of Jonah. In Jonah, God was ready to dispense his judgment upon Nineveh, but he sent Jonah to the people so that they could repent. And he relented from his judgment. God is slow to anger. But let us make sure we don't confuse God's being slow to anger with the thought that God will not judge sin. God judges sin, God punishes his enemies, but thankfully God is slow to anger. And then the last characteristic of God we see is that he is great in power. Nahum shows us in the, starting in the middle of verse 3 going through verse 6 and he gives us examples of God's power and I want us to see how he does that this morning because Nahum begins with the whirlwind and ends with the earth. It's almost as if Nahum is saying that God is great in power from the heavens down to the foundations of the world, which we know he is, starting in the middle of verse 3. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. I want us to focus on a mo- for a moment on God being a jealous God. What does this mean? What does it look like for God to be a jealous God? You know, sometimes we make the mistake of looking at who we are as humans and the way we behave and we take our emotions and our understanding of things And we place them upon God. And we think, because I'm this way, God is this way. It's it's something I think we do naturally. We get the order reversed. And we think God is a certain way because we are that way. When what we're meant to do is, is look at God and who he is. And let that impact who we are. So it would be wrong for us to think of God being a jealous God as being the same as we are when we are jealous. 
Our human jealousy looks like I want what you have. I wish I had what you had. I'm upset that I don't have what that other person has, so now I don't like them because I want it. That's what it looks like in our human flesh when we are jealous, we are envious, we covet what another person has. That is not what it means for God to be a jealous God. God being a jealous God means that he demands the loyalty and the worship of his people. He demands the loyalty and the worship of his people. God does not tolerate disloyalty. He demands that his people worship him alone. And in Jeremiah chapter 3, we see that God is jealous for Israel and God is jealous for Judah because of their idolatry. Starting in verse 6 of Jeremiah chapter 3. During the reign of King Josiah, by the way, King Josiah is reigning in Judah during Nahum's ministry. So Jeremiah chapter 3 lines up with what's going on in the book of Nahum. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And and her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, She defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. You see, Israel and Judah turned away from God and looked to foreign nations to protect them. And God was jealous for his people because as they looked to foreign nations like Assyria for protection, they began to worship the false gods and the idols of Assyria. And because of their disloyalty, because they did this, God eventually gave the people what they showed they wanted. And he exiled them into Assyria, where they were ruled by the nation that they turned to for protection. And the best picture that I can think of to demonstrate God's jealousy is the covenant of marriage. That's the best human picture I can think of. After all, our marriages between a husband and a wife are supposed to mirror Christ's relationship to the church. And when you enter into the covenant of marriage, you stand before God and your friends and you enter into a covenant with either your husband or your wife and Lord and you say that you will forsake all others. You will forsake all other women or you will forsake all other men and you will put your husband or your wife before everyone else and you will love and you will cherish and you will honor them. You see, 
Our marriages reflect God's relationship with us. When you enter into that relationship, that marriage covenant with your spouse, you should do everything in your power to keep that relationship private, to keep anyone else from entering into that relationship, to keep any other man or any other woman from entering into that relationship. Because if another man or another woman enters into that relationship, your affection and your attention and your love will be drawn away from your spouse. So we put up guardrails to keep that from happening. Kind of like when in the Old Testament God gave his people the Mosaic Law to keep them from straying out of the covenant that he had entered into with them. Thanks to technology, we live in a world where We probably need more guardrails than they needed at the time because with just a TV screen or a text message, someone else could enter into our marriage relationships. So we have to guard our marriages. One way that Kayla and I do that is we will not ride in a car one-on-one with someone of the opposite sex. This came up in a conversation the other day and I sat there taking part of the conversation, but I had the thought to myself that I didn't share at the time. And I thought, I literally, literally, this is no exaggeration, I'm an extroverted, outgoing person. I literally don't know how I would carry on a conversation in the car alone with another female that's not my wife or someone in my family. Just thinking about that makes me feel awkward. It makes me feel anxious. I don't want to know how I would do that. I don't ever want to be in that situation. I am jealous for my wife, so I don't want any other man to steal her affection or her love away from me. My wife is jealous for me. She does not want any other woman to steal my affection and my love away from her. God is jealous for his people and he does not want any idol, any false God to steal our affection and our love and our worship away from him. And that's what it means for God to be a jealous God. Because he knows if we look to other idols and to other gods, we'll turn away from him. And God wants to protect the relationship that he has with his people. In the second section of the book, the end of chapter 1, God promises peace to his people. God pronounces judgment against Assyria. And he promises that he's going to destroy Nineveh and redeem his people. And in verse 14 of chapter 1, he speaks directly to the king of Assyria. To the king of Nineveh and he says to the king, you are going to die, you will have no children to carry on your line and your false gods are going to be destroyed. Watch how this happens starting in verse 9. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. This is what the Lord says. 
Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are vile. You see, God is fully aware of the suffering of his people. He was fully aware of their suffering then. He is fully aware of the suffering of his people now. God allowed allowed Judah to suffer under Assyria because of their sin. But he only allows it for so long. God is slow to anger. But he still judges sin. He still judges his enemies. And we see in these verses that God promises to end Judah's suffering at the hands of Assyria. And just a few years after Nahum wrote this book, that happened in 612 B.C. The Babylonians invaded, totally wiped Nineveh off the map, and Assyria no longer had power over Judah. Chapter 2 opens with the beginning of this attack on Nineveh. This attack is God's retribution against this nation because he used Assyria to discipline his people. God used Assyria to go into the northern kingdom of Israel to invade the kingdom, to scatter his people and to take them into exile. He did that because his people turned away from him and worshiped false idols. But now, because of Assyria's sin, they will be destroyed. I told you earlier that God gave his people the Mosaic law to warn them so that they would not turn away to these false idols. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, long before this, God warns his people through Moses. He warns them not to worship false idols and not to arouse God to anger. Starting in verse 25 of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Moses is speaking here. It says, after you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. Because Israel would not follow God, they were exiled to Assyria. A few hundred years later, because Judah would not follow God, they were exiled into Babylon. And after Israel is taken into into exile, Nahum gives us a pretty detailed picture of what's going to happen to the city of Nineveh. And he pictures an enemy quickly attacking. He pictures the Babylons coming to attack. And as they approach, the men of Nineveh are summoned to defend the city. But this enemy that's coming is well-trained and well-equipped. And they have a really good plan of attack. In verse 6 of chapter 2, they invade the city, they take over Nineveh's water supply, and then they turn it against the city. 
And Nineveh is literally flooded with invaders and with water. But that's not ultimately why Nineveh is destroyed. It's because God is against them that the city is eventually overrun and plundered. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress. Watch the road. Brace yourselves. Marshal all your strength. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. The destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. The shields of the soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal of the chariots flashes on the day they are made ready. The spears of juniper are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. Nineveh summons her picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. It is decreed that Nineveh be exiled and carried away. Her female slaves moan like doves and beat on their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. And then verse 13. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke. And the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Ultimately, because of their wickedness, Nineveh and all of Assyria will be destroyed. And this is the picture that Nahum paints for us in chapter 3. There will be so many casualties in this attack on Nineveh. The bodies will be piled so high that they won't even be able to be counted. The dead will not be able to be counted as people stumble over them. Because on the day of judgment, there is no hope for Nineveh. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots. Charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. All because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? So how do we apply this book to our lives today? I want to give you two ways that we apply the book of Nahum to our lives today. The first way is by realizing 
that Nahum is a warning for God's enemies to repent. Nahum is a warning for God's enemies to repent. And today, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, if you have not surrendered to Jesus and are not following him, you are God's enemy. That's not very good news after what we have just seen in the book of Nahum. Thankfully, there is very good news. Because we were far from God, God sent his only son, Jesus, to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, and to die on the cross to pay the price for our sins, to rise from the dead on the third day to conquer death so that we can have life. And this morning, if you have never put your faith in Jesus, if you've never surrendered to him, the book of Nahum is a warning to you. But God is slow to anger. Thank God he is slow to anger because today there is still time to put your faith in Jesus. And I invite you to do that today if you have not done it. So far we have seen that Assyria was a culture of greed, a culture of oppression. They were a culture of idolatry. They were a bloody culture. And they were a culture of deceit. The more that we study the minor prophets this fall, and the more that I read the minor prophets, the more and more that I see our nation looking like those nations that the prophets prophesied against. The more we read these, the more that I look at this list and I say, yes, America is a nation of greed. Yes, there is oppression in America. From the beginning of our history, there has been oppression in America. Absolutely, we are a nation of idolatry that worships ourselves and what we want before we worship our Creator and our Savior. Yes, we are a deceitful nation. And though we may like to ignore this one, absolutely, we are a bloody nation. No, we're not going out conquering nations and making them serve us. But I did... A Google search this week. And according to Google, in America's history, a little over a million Americans have died in the wars that we fought in. That's just Americans. That's not the people on the other side of these wars. I tried to look to see how many people had died in slavery in America. And I found all the way from 5 million to 60 million. We have no idea. I don't think we will know on this side of eternity how many people truly suffered during that dark time in our nation's history. But I did find one statistic from an article from back in January that's now out of date. But in the last 49 years, since 1973, as a nation, 63,459,781 Babies have been aborted in our nation since January. 
This number is already not high enough. 63,459,781. How do we apply Nahum to our lives today? We must pray for our country. I believe all of us can agree that the greatest thing that our nation needs is another great movement of God's Spirit across our nation. Whether it's another great awakening or revival, the greatest thing that we need today is the Spirit of God in our nation. And if you look back through the history of Christianity, every great movement of the Spirit of God started in prayer. How do we apply this book today? We must be a church that prays. We must be a people that prays. That's one of our greatest desires at Harvest is to be a church that prays. That's why every Sunday morning at 9.30 we gather together and pray. If you've never been to a prayer service, I invite you back next week at 9.30. If you haven't been in a while, I invite you to come next week at 9.30. If you were here this morning, I invite you to come back next week at 9.30. We also pray virtually online every Thursday morning. Right now, we have a need of child care for our prayer services at 9.30 on Sunday mornings. Some young families have said, man, we'd really come to worship. We'd really come to pray. But it's difficult for us with young children. Maybe God would lead you to say, hey, one Sunday a month, I'll step up and I'll, I'll take care of these young children so that their parents can come and pray. If that's you, come talk to Pastor Jerry or I this morning. We must be a people that prays because revival must start with us. So where do we see hope? I want to leave us with three ways that we see hope in the book of Nahum this morning. The first way is by remembering who Nahum is speaking to. This is a dark book. It's a book full of judgment. But we, if you are God's people, should remember that Nahum is speaking to God's people about his enemies. God is telling his people that he is going to judge his enemies. And we should find hope in God's justice. It may not come when we want it to. It may not come in our timing, but God's ways are greater than our ways. And God is going to judge his enemies. Evil will eventually be punished. The second way that we see hope in Nahum this morning is remembering by remembering that the Lord is our refuge. The Lord cares for his people. He is a safe place to go to. In verse 7 of chapter 1. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. And then the third and final way that we see hope in Nahum this morning is by looking to Jesus for hope and trusting him. In verse 15 of chapter 1, Look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. All throughout this series, we have said that the prophets prophesy about the near future and the distant future. 
The near future that Nahum is prophesying about was the defeat of Nineveh and Assyria. The distant future that Nahum is looking to here in verse 15 is the coming of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And we know that because Nahum reminds the people of God to celebrate their festivals, to look forward to the coming of Jesus. You can come on up, Jennifer. Nahum looked forward to the cross for his ultimate hope. We look back to the cross and we look forward to the return of our king. Because our ultimate hope and our ultimate good news comes from Jesus. There is judgment for all those who deny Christ. But for those who put their hope and their trust in Jesus, there is grace. There is forgiveness of sins. There is adoption. There is salvation. And there is life in Jesus. He is our refuge in all times. And today I invite you to put your faith in Him. I want to close this morning with the story of Craig Merrimee. In 2011, Craig was a young father of three who was diagnosed with an incurable disease. A month before he died, he wrote this in a blog post. Just looking at myself in the mirror, I can tell my downward spiral has begun. I'm at my all-time low of about 118 pounds. I have an awkward time shaving my face because it is pure bone. And I feel like I'm having to shave every bony contour my face has. My yellow eyes constantly remind me my jaundice is settling back in. This pretty much means things are going to eventually start shutting down. There's nothing out there that makes sense for me to do to treat this that we haven't already looked at. The truth is, my desired outcome from this situation is so very awesome. The encouragement that I have that my eternal life will be in heaven and that I will be cancer-free soon puts a smile on my face. God is good. How could this young father say in this time in his life that God is good? His hope was in Jesus. God was his refuge. And while I don't know what you're going through today or what you face this week, this is what I do know. God is good. God is a refuge for his people. And there is hope in Jesus. And I want to give us some time this morning to respond to what we've heard today in prayer. Just from where you are, I invite you to praise God, to thank him for being your refuge. If you don't know him, I invite you to put your faith in him. We don't normally do this, but if you need to talk to someone or you need someone to pray with you, come grab one of the pastors or an elder or one of the deacons. We'd love to pray with you this morning. But from where you are, just spend time with God in prayer. And then in a few moments, some of our elders are going to come and pray for us on the mics. But let's pray together this morning.
Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.